What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Hey, this is The Cutting Room, and as you notice, we've got a lot of new things on this show. For one thing, we've got a new opening, as you probably just noticed. Uh, we're experimenting with that a bit, so if you could send us your feedback at info at artofthegeotine.com, that'd be great. So we have an interview with Tom Haneke this week, and we're going to be breaking it into three parts, which is another different approach that we're taking. So this is part one of the Tom Haneke interview, and it lasts for about 20 minutes. Now, Tom Haneke started out as a corporate film editor, and he moved over to feature documentaries with his work on the Oscar award-winning film from Mao to Mozart, Isaac Stern in China. Now, he's also cut the award-winning film American Dream, which won an Oscar for Barbara Koppel, and continues to work with her, including her work on My Generation, which he also got a co-directing credit. In 2008, he cut American Teen, which won several awards and had a small theatrical release and can now be rented at your local video store. I highly recommend you check it out. We've also found a few videos of Tom teaching over at the Manhattan Edit Workshop, as well as some videos on Zoom in Media. So we'll be posting those in the coming days to supplement our interview. But in the meantime, enjoy part one of my interview with Tom Haneke. Well, thank you for allowing me to interview you. Yeah, sure. How'd you get into film editing? Well, um, it was 19... I graduated from college in 1970, and things were a lot different then. You know, people were majoring in philosophy and writing novels, and I decided I would go to film school. So I kind of jumped in with both feet. I hadn't any previous experience making films. But I applied to every major film school, and the only one that would let me in was Boston University. So I went up there for two years, got a master's, and at that time, all the work was either in New York or L.A. So I came back to New York and started knocking on doors, just trying to get a job. I didn't want to direct necessarily. I wanted to work in the industry. So I, I was knocking on doors. I got a job doing everything, carrying the camera cases when we went out on shoots, running the projector, thinking dailies, blah, 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 you know, going to the dry cleaners for the guy who owned the place, everything. And one of the things I did was be the assistant editor, and I liked it a lot. At school, there had been no good editor on the faculty, so I kind of graduated hating editing because I had no idea how to do it. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I got into an organized cutting room, I said, I like this place. You know, it's a good combination of left brain and right brain, mm -hmm. uh, organizational, a lot of, at that time, it was a lot of mechanical, too. We were splicing film. But I just took to it, you know. And because the guy I was working for was kind of cheap, the very next film he got, he didn't get many films, but the very next one, he asked me if I wanted to cut it. And, of course, I jumped at the chance. So I very happily short-circuited the at that time, 10-year apprenticeship that uh, an assistant would normally put in before they actually began to cut. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, assistants were in the editing room all the time. You needed an assistant with you all the time because of the mechanical handling of the film. But So I got, I got suddenly I was an editor, uh, and I started getting these little jobs, doing films about potato chips and educational films and corporate industrials and... You know, one thing led to another, always freelance, one at a time. And I did that for about four or five years and started getting sick of it and thought, maybe I don't want to be working on films about American Express office procedures for the rest of my life. 
I remember having a thought specifically in a hot July, cutting it and saying, maybe I made the wrong decision. But one thing um, came up, um, this guy I knew in my early days, uh, his normal editor became unavailable for a project that he inherited, and he offered me the job. I had never cut anything longer than 20 minutes, and this was a feature-length documentary. And he asked me if I could do it, and I said, well, I haven't done it yet, but I'm sure I could do it, you know. And he took a chance with me. And, you know, nine months later, we had this film call from Mao to Mozart, which was about a visit that Isaac Stern took to China. And one thing led to another, and it won the Academy Award that year for the oh, wow. documentary feature. So, like, I was kind of like, suddenly I was at a different level now, you know. Because mm-hmm. I, I had cut this Oscar-winning film. And so I started getting a whole different quality of call. And, you know, it just kept going. And two years later, I cut another one, which won. Uh, so I thought after that I was pretty golden, you know. People just kept calling me up, and they've been calling me ever since. You said you were an assistant, and then you sort of you skipped that ten-year apprenticeship. Yeah. Or did you get right. any editors who were upset about that or anything like that when you would bump into them? Like, no, here's the thing, because because you know I was working kind of at the at the kind of the lowest level of the industry. It was like mm-hmm. people. None of these jobs were unionized. They were just you know people would go out, these companies would get like a client like Traveler's Insurance Company or something, and they'd want to make a film about how cops ought to be in shape, you know, Mm -hmm. very particularly targeted. And, you know, these people would go out and they'd shoot this film, and I was around at that point as a capable editor. So they would hire me, and it was usually a little bit below union scale. But, you know, and I was my own assistant. I would just, I would do everything mm-hmm. in the room. And I'd just knock them out, and they'd be happy at the end, and I'd invoice them, and then I'd have to find something else. People tend to refer people who do good work, and mm-hmm. I got a lot of word of mouth. Among the same class of filmmakers, you know, these yeah. people who are knocking out these little two-minute things for, they used to run these uh, these little films, like in, for Midwestern television as time fillers. You know, and you could have one product placement in the film, and it wouldn't count as a commercial. So I did, like, I must have done, like, ten of them, you know? Picking out summer fruits, and one of the shots would be Cool Whip or something yeah. like that. But a history of potato chips, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it would be, there'd be one product shot in it. Wow. But, you know, every film at that point was a learning experience. Mm-hmm. You, had, you always had to solve a set of problems. And you just moved on and figured it out. And it almost didn't matter what the film was about. When the the two films went for the Oscars, did you get to go with them? or I got to go to the first one that won the Academy Award. I was sitting way up in the nosebleed section. You know? <laughs> but what, what was uh, it like? Because for someone, for, for those well, out there. Yeah, well, it was, of course, really. We had a, you know, first of all, we were amazed that we even got nominated. Uh, but, of course... These, con- these contests are first you say, oh, I just want to get nominated. But as soon as you get nominated, then you want to win. Yeah. So you're rooting. You're basically, you're rooting for it. And the word of mouth on this film was pretty good. It yeah. had been reviewed on television. It actually got like a, a national release. Oh, wow. you know, it didn't make any money. But, I mean, it wasn't just, it was like playing in Gene Shalit, who was the film critic on the Today Show at the time. Must have mentioned it like four times on his on the Today Show, so it helped a lot. It was kind of out there, and so word of mouth on it was pretty good. But mm-hmm. until they announced it at the at the ceremony, you know, 
course, I jumped up in the air because I said, oh, this is great. You know, I've gone to a different place now. You know? <laughs> Actually, I took the I took the um, precaution of making up these these little things, which I sent out to all these filmmakers that I could find in the yellow pages, saying that I had cut a film which had been nominated for an Academy Award because they didn't want to take any chances. But if it lost, then mm-hmm. then what do I say? You know. Yeah. So I sent out a lot of things. You know, I tried to capitalize on it. I like. After I finished that film, before it actually won, like I couldn't find a job. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It was a dry period because nobody had seen it yet. Uh, it wasn't like out there. We had some screenings and everybody said it's great, but it wasn't known yet. So like I was scrambling around. I couldn't find anything. But after it won, then things really picked up. You know? And actually, I, in 91, it happened again with Barbara Koppel, American yeah. Dream. Wow. Uh, so that was three. And after that, I said, okay, I'm good now. In an unscripted format such as documentaries, how do you work with the producers and the directors to find the story? And also, how do you work to find that uh, story, the character arcs, the structures, everything? The people who make these films, they get an idea and they have a passion for the subject. And it is a long road that they go on. First of all, they have to identify the subject. They have to research it. They have to discover subjects to film, and then they have to find the money to film it. They have to get grants and make these endless proposals to every foundation. And then they go out, and then sometimes they travel around the world, and they shoot it, and maybe they'll shoot like 60 days or something. When I get to it, it's usually already shot. Not in every case completely shot, but mostly it is. So they have an intention of what they wanted to do. And they'll bring back, in film days, some was more expensive than tape. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they shot a little more cautiously. So you would have probably a hundred hours of raw material. Now, of course, the shooting issues have jumped up to three and four hundred, five hundred to one. And we're talking like for an hour film, you shoot five hundred hours of raw material wow. because tape is cheap, you know? Mm-hmm. That isn't always the case, but often it is. So talk to the producers, they tell you what they're hoping to achieve. And you go back and forth, and then you sit down and you have to watch all the raw material, like tape after tape after tape. And that can be a really long process. That can be like a month and a half. But just watch it all day, every day. And you have to take very good notes, because this is the only time when you're going to actually get to watch everything. Mm-hmm. And you're discovering as you watch it, and you have to pay very close attention all the time, because a lot of documentary dailies are boring. Things yeah. aren't happening. You know, when the cameraman's wandering around and he's not quite sure what to shoot. But you have to watch all the time because you never know when that little thing mm-hmm. is going to come by in the dailies that you're going to sit up and pay a little closer attention to or it's going to be this great little image which you go, oh, I bet I can use that. And you have to note that in your, in your logging because you'll never remember. It's impossible to remember 200 hours of raw mm-hmm. material. But you really have to watch it because combined with your notes and your visual memory, you'll, you'll be able to recollect something way down the line, maybe six months into the cutting, where at the time it seemed completely insignificant, some image or some little yeah. <laughs> event that they filmed which didn't turn into a scene. Yeah. But it may turn out to be exactly what you need 
way down the line as some editing solution or as a connection to something else or a setup to explain a scene. So you really have to pay very close attention. That's all that way of saying. You can't slack off. Sometimes at the end of the day of screening, I'll just notice in my notes where I'm saying blah, 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 this guy is boring, you know. And I'll basically stop screening for that day. And I'll go back and I'll rescreen that stuff because I don't want to miss anything. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you screen all the material and then I go through my notes. And this is a big step for me. Like I basically classify my notes. I use any kind of database. I, I happen to use FileMaker Pro. Before they invented computers, I used to do, you know, I used to have like, you know, four legal pad, yellow legal pads filled with handwritten notes. And I'd number wow. the pages and I'd go back and I'd classify them. And that means like, okay, you know, you discover issues in the film and themes as you're watching the raw material. And you kind of clued into that based on what the producer was hoping to get. That it often, there are other things in there which were unexpected or unnoticed by the producer. So you just kind of make your classification. And that's a very difficult thing because it's tempting to put things into like miscellaneous. But you really can't do that because you have to identify what is present in the dailies, like relationships between people or big themes about what the subject is and how it's either pro or con or this or that. And you just have to, like, think of it. There's a lot of thinking involved in that process. So I go back and I, and I put these tags on all of my notes. So now I have a whole database with these identified characteristics. I've already gone three steps down the road now to making this film because I've identified what the film, I think, is about mm -hmm. and where that stuff is in the dailies. So then... Mm -hmm. Then we have to start cutting. Yeah. <laughs> and that's hard. That's like standing at the edge of a pool, you know, that's a little cold and you have to jump in. So I usually try and start with something easy. You know, there are certain things that you know are going to be seen. It's just the dynamic is good and it's going to look like a real-time scene. Now, maybe it's, you know, an hour of dailies and the, and the scene in the film is going to be, if it's two minutes and 45 seconds, it's long. But you know there's a scene in there. And I'll tend to start with something like that. I never, like, start at the beginning. I don't know how to start at the beginning. Uh, nor do I select all the material. There are some editors which go back after screening and select everything. But I don't actually do that. What I do is I look at the, you know, my notes and I think about it. And then I figure out what I'm going to try and get out of a particular sequence or scene that I'm cutting. And that's what I reach for in my select. Documentary dailies are never, they're never as clear as you would like them to be. Because if there's a big meeting, say, some town is having some issue, and it's a big fight, you know, mm -hmm. at the town meeting. But there's also a whole bunch of other stuff that happens in those dailies, like a roll call and other people who are off the point, you know, and they're wandering around. Life is very messy. And what you're trying to do is distill it into what you want to get out of those dailies. So that's what you reach for. But you may not want smiling cutaways or... Mm -hmm bored cutaways. You might want angry cutaways. And those are the ones you'll reach for, you know, because of that's what you're trying to get out of that scene. Tension and dispute. Now, if you, was if you were taking another strategy towards what happened at that meeting, you might select a different sort of thing. If you wanted, like, a boring meeting, like, when nobody was paying attention, then you might take a whole different set of stuff and cut it in a different way. So that's what I do. I start with a scene, and I reach for the things I think are the values in that scene. And that's the construction I make. Now, I don't want the producer sitting with me there when I'm doing that, because 
then they become co-conspirators about how clever we were yeah. that we put these lines and put this shot and you know and all they can see is the, the stitches and that's what that's all i can see because i you know i put everything together and i need that distance from them so like i would like to just have them go away and and let me cut some stuff sometimes for weeks you know and then when i get a couple of things happening i will get them to sit with me and and, and screen what i've produced and they can react in a whole different way than looking at their daily. They can now see what is beginning to look like a movie. And they can say, well, that's great, but what about John? You know, or the character. And I'll say, well, you know, John isn't that interesting in this thing. He goes, okay, but we need, to, we need to get him in here somehow. You know, we need him to be in this scene. And I'll say, oh, well, I don't know whether he belongs in here, but I'll take another look and see what I can do. So then I'll go back in and I'll do a recut. And I'll see if I can accommodate their wishes in terms of what they perceive to be the needs of the thing. And sometimes I can't do it. Sometimes I don't think the material will produce it. I have to be the person who tells them that. I'm the viewer surrogate mm-hmm. in terms of, the, of what's on the screen. Because I wasn't out there in the cold, and I didn't have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go to the airport to pick up the lens that got shipped in. And I don't know any of that. I don't care how hard it was. I don't care how funny this guy was when he wasn't on camera or how nice it was when they offered us dinner afterwards. I don't know any of that. Sometimes producers look at the dailies, and it's a little bit like looking at snapshots of their vacation because it it recollects memories for them. Mm -hmm. And none of that is present for me. I just see what's on the screen, and that's good for me and good for them, too. You were talking about structuring the film there a bit. Yeah. How do you go about working with the pacing because within the footage there's a pacing that was defined by the events on set or on the location and a lot of things will happen. Did you say pacing? Yeah, pacing, sorry. Yeah. How do you work with that considering that a lot of times there's pacing built into the shots? I'll tell you, pacing is very pliable and malleable in the cutting room. So anyway, what you do is you, you cut these scenes and inevitably you cut beginnings, middles, and ends on every scene you cut when you're first cutting them. Mm-hmm. You establish the scene, then the scene develops, and then it comes to a conclusion. And that's just inevitable. And then you'll find that you need a montage to connect this scene to that scene, because in order to understand the values of scene B, you need a certain setup of information, which is not a scene, but you just need to know it so that when you arrive at the scene, you understand without wasting the viewer's energy. Mm-hmm. So you'll construct those kinds of things. What I'm getting to is is that after you've been doing this for like a month and a half, you've got a whole bunch of scenes. And, and you're starting to put them in maybe a suggested order. What happens is every scene starts, develops, and stops. So you get all these little loops. But it's not a big arc because you've, every scene doesn't have to start. But it's only when you put them next to a whole bunch of other scenes that you understand that the 14th scene in this assembly, you don't really need to set it up. You just need to go right to the middle of it because you already know the characters, you recognize them, you Mm kind of know what's going on, and you don't need to establish it again, you know? First of all, you do a lot of moving of scenes. This is too early. I have to save this. I can't let them know this because then they won't be surprised when they find out that. 
you know, and there's a lot of manipulation. Then you start putting things up on a wall. You know, I sometimes I use spreadsheets to do that, where I have my sequences and I start reading the film mm-hmm. and saying, you know, it would be better if we knew this before we knew that. And then I'll try flipping the scenes and put them in a different order. And then, of course, you always have to recut a little yeah. bit because, you know, it's a house of cards. And as soon as you pull something out, three other things fall down. Uh, and you have to rebuild them to accommodate mm-hmm. their rearrangement in your proposed plan. Pacing, pacing you can inflict on material. I mean, you can cut stuff depending on how you choose and what your, what your intention is with the material. You can cut in a lot of different ways. Handheld cameras, mm-hmm. you can always cut before the camera comes to rest, and you get this frenetic kind of kinetic energy in a film. Mm-hmm. And then you make the soundtrack kind of noisy, and of course music is a great aid for that. Depending on the music track, it really has a strong emotional effect on the scene you're watching. You know, you can cut very deliberately, yeah. where everything is held, and it cuts slowly, mm-hmm. and you're not upcutting from line to line. Everybody cuts on camera. So you can kind of inflict that, that shape on the material, depending on what you guess its needs should be. You know, yeah. And sometimes when you look at the when you look at all these scenes together, by minute thirty-five in an eighty-minute assembly, you're going, "I'm bored. This is boring. I need something. I need something quick here. <laughs> I need yeah. to move through this next material because I don't want to sit for another scene. You know, mm-hmm. like get me out of this room or get me outside. I just got to go somewhere else. I need a change. I need something else." You know, and then you have to figure out what that might be. And then you go back into your notes and you go, you remember that time when we went to the ballpark? Maybe we could stick that in here and just have no words and just like watch them, you know, or something like that. Those are the kinds of things where you go, we need something here. What could it be? What can we, what can we make out of what we have that can solve this, you know, problem that you've discovered yeah. in the rhythm of the thing that you're doing? We don't often have the engine of plot in mm-hmm. a documentary. You know, it's very nice when you do. But what's going to happen? People will always watch that if, you, if you're a good storyteller. And you kind of have to be to make documentaries. You have to deliver the information in a, you know, the way you would be telling somebody a story. Once upon a time, there was a this. Usually you don't have a plot. You know, like, I've done films like Mother Teresa. Well, there, there was no ending. It was just a look at Mother Teresa. How do you structure that? I don't know. You know, you have to find out. You have to tell people a lot. What's going on? Who are they? What are they doing? And then you have to kind of keep them, keep giving them a little more every time, mm-hmm. so that and going yeah. a little deeper, so that they keep watching and they keep learning and they keep being interested. Because it's not like who's going to win the big game or the spelling bee, for instance. You know that famous that movie, a very popular yeah. document. You want to know who's going to win. You know, you want to know who's going to win. But often that's not the case, you know. I'm doing a film right now for ESPN. I'm just watching the dailies. Mm-hmm. And it's about Yankee Stadium, uh, the closing of the old and the opening of the new. There's no plot. You know? <laughs> it's like there's no plot. They close the stadium and then they open the new <laughs> one. You know, so what's the film going to be? Well, I don't know yet, you know. <laughs> I don't know yet. But, I'll, you know, it's my job to find out, you know. And at the end, they hopefully you'll feel like you've been on an hour journey where you kind of, you know, kept getting new stuff. And at the end, it, 
all kind of wrapped up into the satisfying experience that you had watching the film. Emotional, I hope, and intellectual, and, and visceral at times, if we can make it that. That was part one of my interview with Tom Haneke. I'd like to thank Tom for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock. Now, if you like our new format that we're sort of taking on here, please let us know at info at artoftheguillotine.com. Or if you dislike it, please let us know at info at artoftheguillotine.com. Join me next week for part two of Tom Haneke's interview, where we'll continue our discussion of techniques for documentary film editing. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.